And would you please turn once again to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. The book of Acts, you know, is recorded has a, is recorded for us an amazing beginning and spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century. It began there in Jerusalem with the risen Lord commissioning his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we've seen that progress. We've seen it there in Jerusalem. We've seen it in Samaria and uh, in in other places. Uh, But here in chapter 13, we have the separation of Barnabas and Saul, who's now referred to as Paul, to the work which God had called them. This work would be ultimately to take the gospel to the Gentiles, not to the exclusion of the Jews, but to the determined inclusion of the Gentiles. The church in Antioch fasted and they prayed for these first missionaries and then sent them out. They traveled by land and by sea over treacherous mountains until they came to another city called Antioch. This one is Antioch in Pisidia. It's a Roman province in what was then called Southern Galatia. This is where they would plant several churches to which Paul would later write the epistle to the Galatians, which is a vitally important book in the New Testament. Now, when we were looking at this passage previously, we looked at, first of all, verses 13 through 15, which speak of an invitation to preach. When Paul and his party arrived in the city, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and they sat down. And after the customary reading of the law and the apostle or the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to these visitors asking them, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on or speak up. And so we uh, we looked at that and then we looked at the message which they delivered in verses 16 through 41. Uh, They didn't look at one another in confusion, wondering who was going to say what or if anyone had a word. No, they had a word. They had a word of exhortation, all right. They had a message from God to deliver to the people. That's why they were there. That's why they were prayed for and fasted for and, and commissioned and sent out for that very thing. They had a word from God. That's why they suffered so many dangers and hardships to come there. In verse 26, Paul calls that message the word of this salvation, the salvation of which he is speaking. Sometimes when God would send his prophets to the people, he would send them with a message of judgment and doom. This, though, was a message of salvation it was good news, which is that's, that's what the gospel means. It means good news. Now, this good news does presuppose bad news. And what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that they needed to be saved. 
That's what a lot of people don't really understand. They don't think they need to be saved. They're fine. They're good. They're fit as a fiddle. Why do they need a doctor? Why do they need to be saved? Well, the Bible teaches that like a drowning man in the ocean going down for the last time who hasn't an ounce of energy left to save himself, they need to be rescued. They need to be saved. What's the danger from which they need to be saved? What's the danger from which we need to be saved? It is from the judgment of God. The judgment of God because of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now that includes physical death, but more importantly, it speaks of a second death, a spiritual death, a separation from God. Sin, the Bible teaches, separates us from our Maker. God is a holy God and has nothing to do with sin. And when sin came into the world, separation took place. A separation from God. We are spoken of as aliens from God. We are spoken of as being at enmity with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, men by nature are not reconciled to God. They are not at peace with God. They may think they are because they have good feelings about God, but that doesn't mean they have peace with God. They need to be reconciled to God. Now, we noticed three things about Paul's sermon. And this was the first recorded sermon of Paul. Certainly not his first sermon and certainly not all of his first sermon. But we do have a quite a great sum, summation of his message. And we saw that, first of all, it was thoroughly biblical. Uh, Paul's not there to give them his own thoughts or ideas. His own perspective on life and religion. He's not even there to give his testimony about himself. Now, that helps and he can use that as an illustration. But he's there to preach the Word of God. The message they brought was not something new. It wasn't a novel teaching that appeared out of nowhere. No, it wasn't, as Peter would say later, not some cleverly devised myth. Their message had its roots deeply embedded in the Old Testament Scriptures and in the promises of God. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah they would proclaim to the people there in Antioch. The Lord's anointed had come. This man, Jesus, whom they preached, was the one whom the Scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. This is why later, when Paul and Silas came to the city of Thessalonica, they too entered the synagogue as they did here. And for three Sabbaths, it says, they reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. When they came preaching Jesus, they showed that He was the one promised long, long ago. 
Then when they came to Berea, another Greek city, they also came to the synagogue of the Jews and they preached the same message. And it says the Bereans searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. This Jesus, whom you say is the Messiah, they went back to the scriptures of the Old Testament to look at those passages, to look at those verses and see, is he the one? And then we saw that this message was God-centered. It's all about what God has done. He's the subject of most every verb in this passage. He is the one that chose their fathers. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the world. And that teaches us that not only the fact that God is in charge, but that salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. Salvation is something that God took the initiative. He planned it. He carried it out. He promised, and then He fulfilled His own promises. And then finally, we saw that it is God-centered. This message of Paul was God-centered. Even though he begins with what looked like a lesson on Israel's history, what he was actually doing was showing that Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive promises. It's been said that the grand theme of the Old Testament is someone is coming. And the grand theme of the New Testament is that someone has come. The Lord Jesus Christ. God, you see, is both the great promiser and Jesus is the great promise. According to the promise, it says in verse 23, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Well, what I want us to look at this morning is Israel's response to this. Well, not Israel's response, but the response of this multitude, including Jews, but also Gentiles. Uh, they, uh, they responded to the message, and we find that in verses 42 through 52. And would you please follow with me as I read those verses? Beginning in verse 42. And so when the Jews went out to the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Sound familiar? And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout, uh, stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, the message they brought, the preaching of the gospel, was the Word of God, the Word of the Lord. Spoken of that in a number of places in the passage we just read. In verse 44, on the next, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. They asked for them to preach the same thing again, and they're calling it the Word of God, because it was. It wasn't the Word of men. It was the Word of the living God. Verse 48, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified uh, the Word of the Lord. Again, it's spoken of as God's Word. Verse 49, And the Word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. It was a message from God. And such a message calls for a response. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Even when he gave directions to his apostles, he said, if they receive you, they receive me. If they reject you, they reject me. It deserves a response. No, it demands a response. And we see, first of all, a positive response. In verses 42 through 44, it says that when, they, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And so you see how they're, they're desiring to hear more. They weren't enamored by the messengers, but by the message itself. They liked what they heard and they wanted to hear more. I heard Sam Waldron say, uh, I, I feel good if, if a couple people come up to me afterwards and say, we liked your message. But here, they, said they all clamored. They begged, please come back. We want to hear more. This was a very good sign. A very good sign. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What do you feel about the Word of God when it is read or when it is preached? Are you receiving it as the as the Thessalonians? Uh, they received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Well, how different this is than so many. R.C. Sproul said uh, people have said to him, I've tried to read the Bible, but it's boring. It is boring to them because they are dead. <laughs> if people can come to the pages of the of a book that reveals the truth from the eternal God and be bored, that says nothing about the book. It says everything about their soul. So what do you think about the Bible? Is the Bible the Word of God to you? Do you understand? Have you received it to be the Word of God? Perhaps it is because of your soul. Perhaps it is because you're blind. You receive not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to you. Neither can you discern them. But here, these people wanted to hear more. And then 
Notice it goes on to say, uh, when the congregation uh, had broken up, verse 43, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, that is, Paul and Barnabas speaking to those Jews and devout proselytes, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, this indicates that they believed the message they heard, that they had embraced it as the truth from God. Because he says they were persuading them to continue in the grace of God. That implies that they've received it. Now, they urged them to continue. You see, true saving faith is not a once-for-all act. Uh, it's not a once-for-all act, but it's a continual act of believing, of, of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, that's an important distinction there. There's, there's a faith that saves and there's a faith that doesn't save. Uh, Jesus spoke of a temporary faith that some might receive the word immediately and rejoice. But after time, when persecution arises and tribulations and so forth, what do they do? They fall away. They fall away. Just like the, the, the plant that grows that has no root. The sun comes out and it withers. Well, there's a faith that doesn't save. And so they're urging them to continue in the grace of God. You believe that God sent His Son to save sinners. That He is the only way of salvation. You're trusting in nothing else. Is that hymn that we sang the other night? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You see, that's a Christian. Someone who's no longer trusting in themselves and their righteousness. No longer trusting in anything they can do to try to make themselves right with God. But they are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We say it's by grace alone. By faith alone. Not faith plus works. In Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. And he says, continue in that. Continue in that and you are safe. You're like being on the ark. You won't drown. You're going to be safe. If you jump off the ark, all bets are off. But here he's saying, continue in the grace of God. You see, the significance of this would become even more apparent in the days and the years ahead. I mentioned to you that this region in which they were preaching was southern Galatia. It's here where uh, Paul and his, his companions would plant churches. It is here Paul would address the book of Galatians or the letter to the Galatians, to the Galatian churches. You see, false teachers would come into these churches with another gospel, another gospel altogether. It really wasn't good news at all. Not a gospel of grace alone, but a gospel which would include a works based righteousness. They wouldn't object to believing in Christ. They just said you need something more. 
That's good as far as it goes. But if you really want to be a member of God's kingdom, you need to be circumcised or you need to keep these certain Old Testament rituals. No, the Bible taught and Paul taught it's by grace alone, not by works. Circumcision isn't going to help you one little bit. In fact, if you hold on to circumcision, you know what that says? You're no longer holding on to grace. He said to the Romans, it's either grace or it's works. You can't put them together. It's like oil and water. They do not mix. You're saved by grace. That means what God has done through Christ. Nothing what you have done. Thy works, not mine, O Christ. Speak gladness to this heart. It's what He has done. And He's telling them to continue in the grace of God. Well, this positive response was indeed good. And they were so excited, they, they went and told everyone. And they came back to hear them again. And they brought even more people. It says the whole city turned out to hear these men preach the gospel. That was the positive response. But then we have a negative response. And that's found in verse 15. Uh, well, verse 44 says, And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken of, spoken by Paul. So here is this negative response. And you couldn't have a more opposite reaction, could you? The others were glad. They were excited. This is wonderful. They wanted to hear. They begged to hear. These others, though, they didn't want to hear anymore. They heard enough. And they opposed it and they contradicted it. It says they were filled with envy. Envy or jealousy. Why? Well, they saw the crowds. They saw the crowds coming to hear these strangers, these visitors. They asked them to preach, but they didn't know they were going to get that kind of reaction. Uh, maybe they were even hoping they weren't so good because that will make them look better. But whatever it was, God was moving and the people were coming. They saw the large crowds coming to hear the message. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. In fact, the, the religious leaders, when they saw the popularity of Jesus among the multitudes on that day of the triumphal entry where people were following Jesus into the city and they were coming out of the city and they were throwing their palm branches. And it says they said among themselves, Look, the whole world has gone after him. Even the, even Pontius Pilate knew why they had handed Jesus over to him to be crucified. It says because of envy they did this. They couldn't stand to see him rising in popularity because they wanted to be the center of attention. They wanted to be the people's teachers and preachers and so forth. That's a very dangerous thing. Envy is. It'll ruin everything you do, everything you touch. If you can't be content with God's blessing on another man's ministry or another church's ministry, you'll be filled with envy and, and bitterness and jealousy. And then it says they were contradicting and blaspheming and opposing the things spoken by Paul. They contradicted his message as something that's false. They blasphemed it as evil. They found fault in everything he said. 
They opposed it in every way they could. And we read at the end of the chapter that they went on to stir up further opposition against them. In verse 50, so the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. There seems to be a pattern in the negative response of the gospel wherever they would go. They weren't content to reject it themselves. They wanted to influence others. They wanted to turn others away. Remember, Jesus even said that you, you, to the Pharisees, and you'll, you'll turn away anyone else that wants to be saved. You'll turn them away. And then we look at Paul and Barnabas' response to their negative reaction in verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. That's a good thing. Instead of being frightened and intimidated, they grew bold. It wasn't a brashness. It wasn't an arrogance. It wasn't just trying to be tough. They were being bold in the Lord. You know, the apostles often prayed for boldness. By nature, they were cowardly, like Peter running, denying that he even knew the Lord. But then later he's praying that you would, we would be filled with boldness. Paul prays for the, asks the Christians to pray for him in several of his letters. And he says, pray for me that I would speak the word of God with boldness as I ought. As I ought to. This is something that ministers ought to do. It's the right thing. After all, we're telling the people what God said. Now, we're going to be afraid of their faces, their frowns, their dislikes, their persecutions. No, we're to speak the word boldly as we ought. Verse 46 goes on to say, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turned to the Gentiles. He says it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. That is to you, the Jewish people, to be spoken to them. And so he preaches to them and he says it was necessary that we did it this way. Remember, when he speaks of the gospel, he says the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We take it to the Jew first. Salvation, the Bible says, is of the Jews. The promises were made to them and to their fathers. The Messiah came through their lineage. But he says, since you reject it, since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. The story in the Gospels, you read about the Gentile woman who came to Jesus begging for mercy. She had a demon-possessed daughter. And you remember when she's begging for mercy, and Jesus said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped and saying, Lord, help me. And he said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. But here's something even different, though. It's like the children are spitting their food out in disgust. Their children are turning their noses up in revulsion of the gospel, the good news. They rejected the Son of God. 
Paul was pleading with them not to be like the rulers in Jerusalem, and yet they're doing the very same thing. The rulers in Jerusalem, they condemned the Lord. The rulers in Jerusalem handed them over to be put to death. Don't be like them. And yet this is exactly what they're doing. He says, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now, we know that no one is worthy of eternal life. You don't earn it. It's not because you're good enough or you're better than others. No, not at all. No one is worthy. But what he's saying of them is you have said in effect that the gospel is beneath you. You don't need it. You're going to continue seeking to establish your own righteousness by keeping the law. You don't want it. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they which testify of Me. But they wanted nothing to do with it. And so He says, we turn to the Gentiles. We turn to the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles are going to receive the message that you wanted nothing to do with. We'll turn to them. Now his warrant for doing so, he quotes Isaiah, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. He says, I've set you. Now, Paul says he's commanded us. But here it was originally given to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they were to be a light to the Gentile nations. They weren't to be cloistered in their own little nation and hide the light. They weren't to put it under a bushel. They were to let it shine. But they had failed to do this. They didn't want the Gentiles to come in. In fact, that's much of the opposition you see against the gospel by the Jews. They didn't want the Gentiles to come in, especially not to come in without submitting to the Jewish circumcision and the other rituals. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This is His warrant for doing so. And this was something that was promised long, long ago. It wasn't an afterthought in the mind and the plan of God to save the Gentiles. He promised it to Abraham way back. He said, I will make of you a father of many nations and in you, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. When we come to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we see this great multitude that no man can number. It corresponds to, it's the spiritual correspondence to the physical blessing of Abraham. Behold, your descendants shall be as the stars in the heaven and the sands of the sea. And so there, these spiritual descendants are like a great multitude that no man can number from every tribe and kindred and nation, all saved by the grace of God. They all got there the same way, whether from the Old Testament all the way through the New. They came by trusting in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the response of the Gentiles in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, that Paul said, we turn to the Gentiles. When they heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. 
Oh, this was good news for them. They had been shut out in so many ways from the kingdom of God. They were called aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. They had no hope without God in the world. They were pagans. They were worshipers of idols. And now Paul is saying, I'm turning to the Gentiles, that I'm turning to them with this good news that you, the Jews, are rejecting. You want nothing to do with it? We're turning to them. And they were glad. You see, the rejection of Israel became a blessing to the nations. He turns to them. And again, this would be his pattern. He would go into the Jewish synagogues of various cities. He would preach the gospel. And inevitably, they would chase him away. Now, a few would believe. But he would turn to the Gentiles and they would receive the gospel. Now, in Christ, those who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So they rejoiced in what God was allowing, what God was bringing, salvation to the nations. This is not only Paul's uh, warrant for turning to Gentiles, but it's really the warrant for missions, Christian missions, to take the gospel into the far corners of the world. He said, you will be a light to the Gentiles, salvation to the ends of the earth. God saving a people from every tribe and kindred and nation. There's no land where his voice is not heard. It must go out. It will go out. Christ will have a people for his own possession. And then it says in verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. That's his a note we keep hearing again and again. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, is the Word of God stifled? Is the fire put out? No. It keeps going. It keeps spreading. Because God is going to ensure that it's spread. They were being faithful to their calling. They were preaching the Word. And they were faithful to this. But it says in verse 50, The Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They wanted nothing to do with them. In other cities, they say, oh, here are those, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. We look at that as a badge of honor, turning the world upside down. That means you're making an impact. You're, you're, You're doing something. But they meant it as a slander. You've turned everything on its head and you're coming here to do the same thing. We don't want anything to do with you. You remember Jesus warned of this. He promised this would happen. Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad they did this to the prophets of old. They did this to the Lord Himself. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And they wanted, they hated him so much and the message they brought so much, they kicked them right out of their city. It says the apostles, they shook the dust off their feet against them and came to Iconium. Shaking the dust. That was a, a, a protest. It was, is a sort of, okay, uh, you want nothing to do with us or the gospel of Christ. We shake the dust, even the dust from your town and your homes off of our feet. We're leaving. 
says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This didn't affect them negatively. (laughs) The preaching of the Word, isn't that an amazing thing? How the preaching of the Word can make someone so angry they don't even want you in their presence. Or they don't want to be in your presence. They They don't want anything to do with it. They have such a hatred in their hearts. And yet here are these disciples filled with joy. What a contrast. Filled with joy. Rejoicing in the Lord. Knowing that that God is in charge of all these things. That they have a Savior. They can't take that from Him. They can't take the peace from them that He gives. They have a peace the world cannot give and the world cannot take away. So they were, were... Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so in closing, I want to just say to you, the Word of God is preached to you. You hear it here or at other places, I hope, but you hear the Word of God preached. What do you do with it? Are you eager to hear the Word of God? Or are you desiring to hear the Word of God? Are you looking forward to hearing God's Word? Now, sometimes it is the preacher But oftentimes it's our own hearts. Our hearts have been so filled with the world there's no room for Christ or His Word. We need to put those things aside, lay aside those weight, every sin that so easily entangles us that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us. That we might hold fast continually to the grace of God. Put those things aside and, and Dive into God's Word. Reading it on your own. Coming to hear it when it's preached. Speaking to one another about the Scriptures and what it says. The Word of God should have our chief interest above all things. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We ought to be like Job who considered the Word of God more than his necessary food. Do you consider the Word of God that important in your life? And then show it by how you attend the Word of God, how you long for it, how you pray for it, how you meditate upon it. Let me ask you also, are you continuing in the grace of God? This Word teaches from beginning to end that salvation is all of God and all of grace. Are you seeking to weave your own works into your salvation? Oh, I would never think of that. But maybe you do in a more practical way, not in a theological or theoretical way, but in a practical way. Perhaps you don't come to church because you don't feel worthy to come to church. You don't come to the Lord's table at times because you don't feel worthy. You don't pray because you don't feel worthy. Well, How are you going to be worthy of any of those things? Or you're thinking, well, if I just put enough distance between me and my sin, I'll feel better. Or if I do enough good things, I'll feel better. You see what you're trusting in? You're trusting in yourself. In what you can do to make yourself right and presentable and acceptable to God. But you need to understand that it's not that way. God didn't send His Savior into the world because you can fix it up yourself. He didn't send His Son to the cross because you could keep the law well enough to make yourself right with Him. 
If you could be justified by the law, then Christ, Paul said in another place, died needlessly. Are you looking to Christ alone for your salvation, for your acceptance with God? Are you trusting Him to cover all of your sins? Not just the sins of your past, but of the present and the future. You're trusting Him and Him alone to save you, to make you right with God. You need to cleave to the Lord. You need to continue in the grace of God. Believing in Him. Some of you, maybe you've never trusted in Christ. You're like these Gentiles who heard the Word. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to believe it or are you just going to go away? Like just a a fairy tale has been told to you. You need to believe. You children, you need to believe. You need to trust in Christ and Him alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. Remember those three statements. Believe in Him. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son does not have life. But the wrath of God abides upon him. It's still hanging over his head. If you haven't come to Christ, the wrath of God is hanging right over your head. And there's nothing separating you from experiencing that wrath but the mere pleasure of God. You could be alive today and standing before Him tomorrow. You need to look to Him. Paul wanted to tell this good news. This is good news not only for the Jews, not only for these God-fearers, but for all of us. It's the good news of salvation, this word of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray.